0: Hello and welcome back to Pod Save the World. I am your host, Tommy Vitor. I am dropping a bonus episode this week. It is a doubleheader, so get excited. First, I checked in with Asia expert Evan Medeiros about North Korea's recent provocations. Then I sat down with Eric Fanning. Uh, He's the 22nd Secretary of the Army and the first openly gay service secretary in history. We talked a week or two ago Eric has had basically every major job you can think of at the Department of Defense. We discuss what it's like to be essentially CEO of the Army, the importance of diversity in our military, Eric's journey in the Pentagon through don't ask, don't tell to today, and then Trump's stupid, cruel transgender ban. The conversation was before Trump officially sent over his memo to DOD with formal guidance about the transgender ban. But I think you'll find Eric's arguments against it persuasive and important as we try to marshal congress to fight against this mean-spirited ban so as always if you like the show please rate and review us check out the pod save the world facebook page for more information on policy and to suggest ideas for episodes and guests and you can follow me on twitter at tvtor 08 for constant whiny commentary about the world thanks so much On Pod Save the World today, I have Evan Medeiros. Evan is a Asia policy expert who worked on the National Security Council for six years and is now the managing director for Asia at the Eurasia Group, a global consulting firm. Evan, thanks for jumping back on the pod, man. I appreciate it.
1: Tommy, always great to be here.
0: I appreciate that. So I wanted to ask you about North Korea briefly because... It seems like this latest provocation, launching a missile over Japan, is a pretty significant escalation in North Korea's provocations. But uh, you're an expert, and I wanted to ask you and hear what you think.
1: North Korea's recent launch of an intermediate-range ballistic missile is absolutely a big deal, but for reasons different than many of the commentators are discussing currently. In particular, the fact that This IRBM launch was focused on testing the alliance, the U.S.-Japan alliance. It was focused on showing the United States, showing Japan that Tokyo is in the crosshairs. And as North Korea perfects its ICBM capability, that that could call into question the credibility of the U.S. extended deterrent against Japan. In other words, Japan, the key ally, is just as much at risk, if not more, as North Korea develops this capability to target the United States.
0: Yikes. So over time, I mean, the North Koreans have fired at Korean islands and killed individuals. They've they sank a ship called the Chonan, a South Korean vessel. I mean, where do you think this provocation ranks in terms of their recent history of lashing out or taking sort of militaristic steps?
1: Right. It's a great question, Tommy. I would say it's more of a medium-term risk than an immediate risk. It's not like sinking the Chonan, which back in 2010 required the U.S. and South Korea to immediately respond. Rather, this is putting Tokyo and Washington on notice that as North Korea develops a broader range of missile capabilities, that Pyongyang can not only threaten the United States, can not only threaten Tokyo and South Korea, but Uh, Pyongyang is also willing to begin to test and probe the alliance uh, and create debates and divisions between Washington and Tokyo. It puts more pressure on the U.S., puts more pressure on Tokyo and even Seoul to do more potentially uh, creating frictions in those alliances.
0: Do you see splits in the alliances that are disconcerting to you?
1: Not yet, but it's definitely something to watch, especially between the U.S. and South Korea. Uh, President Moon and President Trump's strategies toward North Korea fundamentally are not aligned, and certainly not uh, the way they were under previous conservative governments in South Korea. President Moon is much more interested in dialogue and engagement and a diplomatic solution than the uh, Trump administration appears, and uh, South Korea is concerned that Trump might drag South Korea into a conflict. I mean, it's one of the reasons why uh, South Korea uh, and President Moon have gone on the record publicly as saying, Trump has given me a promise that he won't use military force against North Korea like a surgical strike against North Korea unless South Korea has given its permission.
0: So I saw that the U.N. Security Council issued some sort of response, but it doesn't look like there's any sort of action associated with it. Do you think that we should look for more steps to be taken in response to this provocation or the sort of totality of all the launches recently? Or are we kind of stuck in place here?
1: I think we're really stuck in place. I mean, sure, the U.N. Security Council might debate some more sanctions, but the recent U.N. Security Council resolution 2371 was pretty robust. I think everybody is very much in the mode of trying to implement it because it had some pretty strong uh, sanctions in it to see whether or not that will push North Korea closer to thinking about getting back to diplomacy. I think it's going to be hard because the threshold of pain necessary for North Korea to come back to talks is so high, and it's not clear to me that any of the you know other P5 members are going to be willing to walk up to that threshold, I mean, especially China. Mm-hmm. So I think we're going to be stuck in place with a strategy that the Trump administration refers to as maximum pressure, trying to squeeze the North Koreans as much as possible so they come to some great strategic epiphany that they have to come back to talks. But I think there are real debates uh, about whether or not that strategy is going to be effective. And then we get these weird red herrings like Trump's tweet this morning, which seems to undercut the entire maximum pressure strategy by saying, oh, all options are on the table, even though Trump has been talking big for weeks now. You know, remember his famous statement a few weeks ago about fire and fury, but then all of his advisors, Mattis, Tillerson, et cetera, all walk that stuff back. I mean, even yes. Secretary of Defense Mattis today in his comments with the South Korean defense minister basically said, There's lots of diplomatic options. So it's sort of, it looks as if Trump is pursuing a slightly different approach than his advisors, which just undercuts his credibility with North Korea, with the Chinese, which makes it look like the administration doesn't have a really coherent approach.
0: Yeah, it really does feel like they're just all over the place and that he has backed himself into a a corner rhetorically. My last question for you is, I think people see this news, they see like, Three rockets were fired last week. You see ICBMs being tested. You read about the miniaturization of a nuclear weapon. You see this launch over Japan. It freaks people out. I mean, how worried do you think people should be about the threat from North Korea in the near, middle, and long term?
1: Well, I would say limited threat in the near term because North Korea is still on the trajectory of trying to perfect a nuclear capable ICBM ability. And it looks like it's probably at least a year, if not two years away from that. Ultimately, it's an intelligence question. I think the threats are really medium to long term. Because once North Korea proves that it has an operational ICBM capability, that could fundamentally change the strategic equation in Northeast Asia. South Korea and Japan, as I mentioned previously, might begin to question whether or not the U.S. can credibly back up its commitments. To its security assurances in Northeast Asia. You might have a lot of political pressure on leaders, such as in Japan, to develop their own unilateral strike capabilities. If North Korea believes that it's uh, made great strides in short and medium range ballistic missiles, that might make it more confident in pursuing sort of conventional provocations against South Korea. And anytime those happen, like with the Chonan in 2010 or the YPDO uh, artillery shelling exchange later in 2010, those small incidents with South Korea can pretty quickly escalate. That's why it's more significant over the short to medium term. And then there's the whole question of how is the Trump administration going to approach this? Because the national security advisor has said North Korea is not deterrable, but they're also pursuing this approach of maximum pressure. But if maximum pressure doesn't work and they don't think deterrence and containment will work, then what's left? Preventive war. What are we going to go to war over the Korean Peninsula? Is that a realistic possibility? And given the fact that South Korea doesn't seem interested in that, you know, something's going to have to give.
0: Yes, it will. Evan, thank you so much for explaining a complicated and uh, somewhat frightening situation. You are a, a repeat guest now. You are a huge friend of the pod, and I greatly appreciate it.
1: Thanks, Tommy. Great to chat with you and your colleagues.
0: Pod Save the World is brought to you by Stitch Fix. If you're like a lot of guys, you could probably think of a million things you'd rather be doing than shopping for clothes. I know that is true for me. Between parking and crowds at the mall and the endless browsing and their lack of advice it is enough to make you want to rock the same t-shirt and jeans forever. But you can't. So let me tell you about Stitch Fix. They've reimagined how to buy clothes and you'll never have to leave the house. It is that easy. Just go to stitchfix.com. Tell them your sizes. Tell them your favorite type of clothes. How much you want to spend. And your personal stylist then gets to work. Sending you handpicked new items based on your style and budget. Five items are delivered right to your door. You try them on at home and you only pay for what you keep. I've tried this. I got five items. I actually kept like two or three of them. I've worn the shirt two or three times. I got the great pair of shorts. It really did work. The shipping is free both ways. So anything you don't want, you just send it back. Exchanges are always free too. You can get your fix monthly, quarterly, or whenever you feel like it. There's no subscription required. It is easy and the shipping is free. So why not give it a try? I promise you will be hooked. Get started now at stitchfix.com slash world and you'll get an extra 25% off when you keep all five items in your box. That is stitchfix.com slash world to get started today. stitchfix.com slash world. My guest today on Pod Save the World is Eric Fanning. Eric was the 22nd Secretary of the Army and the first openly gay head of any service in U.S. history. He also served as Acting Secretary of the Air Force, Chief of Staff to the Secretary of Defense, Under Secretary of the Air Force, and Deputy Undersecretary and Deputy Chief Management Officer for the Department of the Navy. I gave up listing your jobs. So my first question is, what didn't you do at the Pentagon? was there like a, was there a mess gig that you wanted that you didn't get a shot at? I would have liked to just stay
2: a little bit longer. I was happy with all the jobs that I had and was I had uh, modeled my time in the Obama administration on what I saw from the Clinton Pentagon where I'd served when I was younger and thought that the guy who sort of hired me out of school had four jobs in the Clinton administration moving up into more seniority and I had nine, so I
0: ever shot that a little bit. but it was a good run. I left the NSC in 2013. When I was there, the person lobbing in the pissed off phone call probably would have been Mark Lippert or Dennis McDonough. Or who, who was it? Uh, who was in your tenure? Uh, it was
2: well, it, really nobody. I had a, I made a I was good friends with Susie George, this woman who was the chief of staff at the National Security Council to Susan Rice, so my counterpart, and we just had a really good understanding that if our bosses were upset, we'd call the other, and we would be clear when it was really really upset. Uh, so we'd help each other decipher what the other ones were doing, and it's good to have
0: a battle buddy like that in an environment like that, as you know. Yeah, especially when the uh, the boss is not so happy. So. I was like half-joking at the top. You really have just had a remarkable career. I think for a lot of people, the leadership structure of the military is is very confusing. My uh, colleague here at Crooked Media, Jerry McKesson, did an interview with Ray Mabus recently where he sort of got him to walk through some of this. And I actually – it was fascinating for me even having worked at the NSC. So I think people have heard of the Secretary of Defense. They've heard of the Joint Chiefs. They don't necessarily know the difference. And you were the Secretary of the Army, acting Secretary of the Air Force. Can you talk a bit about like what your day-to-day job was and how it differed from, say, the, the Chairman or the SecDef, who yeah. you also work for?
2: Well, it's, it is a very confusing structure, even for those of us that work there. It It is designed that way for a number of reasons. A service secretary is the closest thing to being a CEO. I was the CEO of the Army. My job was to take... billion a year and turn it into an army, but then turn that army over essentially to the combatant commanders, the generals and admirals who are in charge of war fighting. So the Joint Chiefs, for example, are made up of the individual chiefs of each of the services. So the Chief of Staff of the Army is the senior military advisor to the secretary of the army when he's the Chief of Staff of the Army. But as a member of the Joint Chiefs, then he's a part of that group deciding what to do with the army.
0: Got it. So there's this proud tradition of civilian leadership in the military and in this country. And it's something actually that you hear four stars talk about with reverence. You hear the chairman talk about it, about how important it is. But that doesn't mean it's easy to walk into a room full of like nail-biting soldiers and generals and who have sacrificed and done so much for this country and, and either tell them what to do or give orders. How did you get comfortable with that role coming in as a civilian and grow into it? Well,
2: I, I think that's exactly it. I grew into it. I, my first job out of college was on the House Armed Services Committee. And then I were, moved over to the Pentagon in the Clinton administration the first day when I think I was 24 years old. And so I've been doing this for a long time, moving rung by rung up the ladder, as a number of uniformed colleagues were doing the same. And so I've known a lot of these people a long time. I've been doing this a long time. And you grow in, you, you assume the job that you're given.
0: How did you divide your time between DOD or getting out to bases and getting out into Afghanistan or Iraq or places? So
2: every, every service secretary does that differently. Uh, you have unbelievable logistical support when right? you're the secretary of the Army. <laughs> you've got Navy, a cool plane. you've got a cool plane. You've got a team. Uh, And you have to make that decision yourself. You you can't do the job well if you're not in the Pentagon for the right meetings, the right decision points, but you can't make good decisions if you haven't been out in the field meeting the soldiers. And more importantly to me, getting out into the field uh, boosted my morale and energy to go back into the Pentagon for all those meetings or to go testify in the Hill. So it really is, you know, I tried to get out for a day every week and then maybe a longer trip once a month. Uh, That seemed like a good balance. But I always... Had to build my schedule
0: around my boss's schedule to be there when he was there. Right, right. Looking at your resume and all the positions you've served in and accomplished in a short period of time, you know, it's truly remarkable. And I know, you know, when I introduced you, I, I talked about the fact that you're the first openly gay secretary, but it was almost like the fifth thing on the list of accomplishments that I wanted to ask you about, but I don't say that to, like, minimize the historic first that that was. But I was wondering if you could talk about what it meant to get rid of Don't Ask, Don't Tell. And does the military feel more inclusive now than it was five, ten years ago when you started working?
2: Well, yeah. There's a lot in that question. Yeah. Um, so, in no particular order, first of all, the military absolutely feels more inclusive. Um, we did a lot in the eight years of the Obama administration to break down artificial barriers to service. You set requirements, and if you can meet those requirements, nothing else matters. Then you have the opportunity to serve women in combat, um, gays and lesbians, transgender, which is you know a hot topic these days. Uh, So it it absolutely feels more inclusive. For me, the end of Don't Ask, Don't Tell was an an incredible experience to be a part of because I was in the Pentagon when it was created. I was there at the start of the Clinton administration. I remember I wasn't out at the time. I'd sit in the room with the Secretary of Defense and the Joint Chiefs of Staff as they talked about this and, and was frankly, mortified at how they talked about gay and lesbian people, service members, people in uniform serving, and, and left Washington for a while, uh, largely as a result of that, came back in at the start of the Obama administration, don't ask, don't tell, still the law of the land, but the president committed to fighting it, to overturning it. And if you remember, it got to the very end of his first two years. We lost the Senate. Um, it hadn't flipped yet. And people were telling him, you don't have enough political capital to get rid of do don't, don't Tell and pass the New START Treaty, which is an existential thing for our country. Right. God bless the president. He swung for the fences and went for both, and he got do Ask, Don't Tell repealed because I could work in the Pentagon so long as— It was weird to go back to an institution that discriminates against people like me, even though, as a civilian, Don't Ask, Don't Tell didn't cover me. But I could do it knowing we were fighting to overturn it. But I thought, if we don't get this done and the Republicans get Congress, I don't know that I can stay in the Pentagon any longer. And thank God we did for a number of reasons, but for me personally, because I went on to get some other great opportunities.
0: Yeah, I mean, I'm 36. The fact that Don't Ask, Don't Tell existed is almost— it's hard for me to remember that it was there, but it was. And it feels like— The same arguments were made against making the military more inclusive over and over and over again. Absolutely. Harry Truman was told that allowing African-Americans to serve in mixed race units would impair the morale of the army. We heard that allowing women to serve would be too sexually distracting for men. We heard that allowing gays and lesbians to serve would – there was a similar argument made there. Was there ever any evidence to suggest – any of those tropes were based in facts?
2: No, and there still isn't. Uh, I think you could go back and find the, well, probably the exact same language and, and coded words that people use over the years. And every time the military figures it out, and, and in my view, gets stronger and moves on. It, it's, I have a lot of confidence in the men and women who wear the uniform of the armed services of the United States of America. And so when, when I'm told that these changes will be disruptive and harm morale and be difficult to implement, I don't believe it based on what I've seen over the years. These are,
0: it's incredible the people that are in our all-volunteer force today. It's just funny that the, these arguments are able to hold sway. Do you think, is that a generational problem or like, what do you attribute that to? Well, I, I think in many ways it absolutely is
2: a generational problem. The 18-year-olds that we recruit today are coming out of a different society than I did, than four-star generals did. And I'm, I'm, I was reminded of this repeatedly because I'd be in the Pentagon with the senior uniformed leadership who'd be anxious about the impact to morale, the impact to readiness. And then I'd go back – you know, in my office with the, the colonels that were on my team and they'd say, well, we could make it work. Right. And then I'd go onto the field and you meet a young captain and you ask the question, and they look at you like, you're crazy. You're like, we're <laughs> already doing it. Right. It'd be nice if you could catch up with us. And right. you know, that, so you realize that many of these policy debates we have in Washington are behind, lagging behind what's already happening in the force yeah. because we're pulling out of a different society.
0: And there's always this cognitive dissonance to me, that I mean, I can't imagine what it was like for you in, in 1994 sitting in meetings discussing don't ask, don't tell, knowing full well that your sexuality had to be hidden from these individuals. At the same time, you have to imagine that service members know they're serving alongside of gays and lesbians now, 20 years ago, 30 years ago. I mean, did we just pretend that wasn't happening? I mean, how— I just don't understand it culturally. how Yeah, this... it is. Cognitive dissonance is the exact right way to describe it. Because
2: as I said, in all of these cases, when we had these debates, it was already happening. So pick women in combat, for example. That was a very emotional debate. You know, should we open up all these positions to women, all combat positions? The fact of the matter is women have been fighting and dying for decades in wars alongside men who are in uniform. And so it's not any secret in the field. You hear it over and over and over again as you have these debates. Soldiers, sailors, airmen, marines in the field will say, it's already here. We're already serving with them. We don't care.
0: Right. I mean, do you think that the arguments about women in combat were dismissed as quickly and easily because there wasn't questions of you know, homosexuality, like that stigma associated? I mean, why do you think those issues moved sort of in parallel?
2: Well, first of all, when you when you are doing that In concert, all these different things that we did over the last eight years, you really start breaking down all of those qualifiers, and it just becomes about standards. And then it it gets easier. Those momentum builds as you extend this opportunity to serve to more and more people who were denied it for artificial reasons. You know, women were already in the military. It was just a matter of what role they were going to play. Whereas with Don't Ask, Don't Tell, they were excluded. So it was, you know, it was kind of, I think, Treated as a more formative policy change than allowing
0: women into the last remaining positions. Pot Save the World is brought to you by Simply Safe. Did you know that summer is burglary season? That is a depressing label. Every summer, burglary rates rise, according to the Department of Justice. It's a domino effect. People go on vacation. They spend the day away at the beach. Their homes are empty. Burglars see the signs you're not home. No cars in the driveway. No lights on inside. It's an open invitation for a break in. That's why my friends at Simply Safe Home Security have extended their biggest ever summer sale to September 3rd. Right now, you can get a whopping $100 off Simply Safe's special summer package. It has everything you need to keep your home safe from intruders. Simply Safe's around the clock monitoring is just $14.99 a month. There's no long term contract, there's nothing to lock you in. It's protection done right. Don't miss out. This offer ends on September 3rd and these systems are flying off the shelf. Go to simplysafecrookedworld.com. You'll save $100 today. That's simplysafecrookedworld.com to get your $100 off. Simplysafecrookedworld.com simply is spelled S I M P L I S A F E. And as always, Pod Save the World is brought to you by the great people at Postmates. If you don't have Postmates, download it now put in the code crooked and you get $100 off free delivery for all the stuff you want to get from Postmates. You can get food, an extension cord, anything you need delivered to your home with Postmates. Download Postmates, use the code crooked and you get $100 in free delivery credit. What are you waiting for? Postmates is great. So July 26th, Donald Trump apparently attempted to reinstate a ban on transgender members of the military through a series of three tweets. He claimed that having transgender people in the military erodes military readiness. As someone whose job it was to determine military readiness and to make sure troops had the training and resources they needed, what do you make of that claim and the response from Chairman Dunford?
2: Well— I, th- I think, first of all, the, the biggest danger to readiness in all of this is what the president's proposing, which is to take thousands of people who've been recruited, trained, or doing their jobs, many of them in war zones today, and yank them out of the force. Nothing's going to be more disruptive than that. We have not seen – you know, this this charge that these changes and opening up service going back – and it was the 69th anniversary when he tweeted of Truman integrating the military – have never proven – um, out There's a, there's a slight, you, you could call it disruption when you're taking some time to train when you make this change. But you have to look at w- what it does to strengthen the force. You know, we are an all-volunteer force. We've been that way for over 40 years. I think it's important that the force reflect the society it's protecting. But it's also important that we have the broadest recruitment base possible so that we can bring in the best that this country has to offer. That's particularly true today if he wants to grow the force, which he said he does. And our ability to recruit is inversely related to the health of the economy. As the economy gets better, people have more opportunities and they don't necessarily come into the military. So pulling thousands of people out, it just doesn't make sense
0: on any level. Another argument that was made was that there was somehow a cost associated with being transgender in the military. Is that something that you give any credence to?
2: I I think all of these things are red herrings and the cost is as well. The uh, RAND did a study, and I think they're the most credible institution to do this study, that said that the healthcare costs could be anywhere from 0.04 percent of our medical budget to 0.1 percent. It's something like one fourth or one fifth of what the military spends on Viagra every year. There's just nothing to base those numbers on, on top of the fact that the accession standards require you to join the military you have to have been stable in your target gender for 18 months. So we're recruiting people who have essentially transitioned. That doesn't mean they won't have issues once they get into the force, but we're not recruiting people that are immediately going to start transitioning
0: the day after they get into the force. Mm -hmm. Did Trump tweet out an issue that was sort of bubbling within the military or seen as particularly significant, or is this something that just came out of nowhere It came out of nowhere, from from best I can tell. It
2: it doesn't mean we weren't wondering if he was going to do something, if he was going to come after this. This was sort of the last thing that we were able to do. But he tweets about it and talks about it as if it's happening now. It happened past tense. We've spent two years (laughs) discussing this, debating this, studying this, coming up with policy, and we implemented it. Uh, And so it's already done. And in fact, as I said earlier, it reflected the fact that there were already transgender people in the military.
0: It was interesting to me, the response from Chairman Dunford and other senior military leaders who essentially said, we're going to wait for a real order. Curious what you thought of uh, the way they handled this. And if President Trump wanted to go through with this ban, what would that look like? What would that process be?
2: Well, first of all, I think General Dunford did that because... Nobody knows how to react to a tweet from the commander-in-chief, from the president. It's not, is it guidance? Is it policy? Is it legal? What is it? In the meantime, it sends all this confusion into the force. A part of why we change policy is to help commanders in the field deal with these issues. They're already dealing with it. They don't have any help from headquarters, so we try to come up with policy to give them guidance and help them. And here's the president saying, oh, never mind. So the chairman of the Joint Chiefs sends out this guidance to say, remember everyone, you know, anyone wearing the uniform deserves respect. We all have jobs to do. We've got really big things, really big threats out there. Let's stay focused on it. And I don't know how you would implement this. First of all, there's a tremendous cost to it. If you take you know, whatever number of thousands of, of transgender service members you think there are, the idea of of pulling them out, taking them out of jobs they're doing, and then the cost associated with recruiting and training people to replace them is enormous, substantially more than what you might estimate for these the uh, medical costs. And the lawyers, I'm sure, don't know how they would implement any of this. Yeah. So we'll see what happens. But I don't see how it's implementable. Do you think there'd be significant legal challenges? I absolutely think there would be. First of all, you know, we made a deal. We we made a compact when we changed the policy. You can serve openly, transgender members, if you meet this if you meet the standards. He's now trying to reverse that. We've never done that before. Taken allowed people to come in and then saying you have to leave now. So I don't know how that's defendable in court. If they want to go after the medical treatment, you know this this is between a service member and his or her doctor based on medical standards. And medical standards say it's something that should be treated. It should be treated. If you volunteer to potentially put your life in the
0: line for the country, one of the things. You get his health care. Right. This is true for so many things he does. I just, I'm wondering, what is the constituency for this decision? These are people trying to serve their country.
2: Yeah, it's, well, I, I you know, the day that he did this tweet, it was an amazing, evolution of emotion i think for most people it felt it was it was really deflating first thing in the morning on that wednesday then i think everybody was really anger angered and, and it was amazing how fast they rallied and then there was kind of excitement because because of how quick the reaction was how forceful the reaction was ba- you know allies spoke more forcefully and emotionally than they had before and others like you look at some of the tweets from republican senators not only did they come out in opposition to the ban they talked about it in terms of fairness mm-hmm. And we've moved past this. We made this decision again, reflecting something that was already happening. And I don't know, you know I, I think his constituency is is a narrow, conservative, values based, in my view, wrong values, but values based as they describe themselves. Congressional caucus, clearly part of his conservative base, but it's it's narrow. and if you look at the polling that's come out, I think I think this president actually has helped the transgender community by introducing them to the country as patriots. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Because they, you know, the reaction, if you look at it, is, wait, they're already serving? I didn't know that. Well, if they are, then it's not fair to kick them out. They right. should be allowed to serve. Yeah. He's, I think
0: he's done the perverse opposite of what he intended. That's such a great point. I hadn't thought about it that way. You talked about the, the response from allies. A lot of people listening to the show are liberal, progressive. What can they do to help? Because I think some of us, myself included, feel a little squeamish about telling the military what to do in any form or fashion, because I have no right to do so. But uh, how can someone be supportive?
2: Well, yeah, let me take this is in reverse order. First of all, telling the military what to do. It is We do have civilian control of the military, and the civilians who make those decisions are elected by the people. That's an important part of the country, and so everyone should feel comfortable expressing their opinion. But it's important to reiterate, the military helped decide what to do to get us to this point to lift the ban and how we should go about allowing service. And so the president doesn't feel any compunction. He's the commander-in-chief in in telling them to do the opposite of what they had decided to do. And what I would tell listeners is – to let their elected officials know what they think about this um, so that we we let our supporters know how much support is out there. But if you are represented by a Republican, let them know how you feel as well. Because there's, there's a lot more support for this than I think people realized. And we saw a little bit of that on that day when we got some of those tweets from Joni Ernst, mm-hmm. Dick Shelby, John McCain, Orrin Hatch. Uh, and so I think... I think
0: it's important that particularly those Republicans know how much support there is out there. Yeah. I mean, I think, like, I got involved in politics in 2002. And then I remember so clearly in 2004 working on campaigns where people said Democrats cannot be out in favor of gay marriage. It's political suicide. The country's not ready yet. And then the country just moves on a dime. And it's been heartening to see, I think, that come through in this issue as well. I mean, maybe people just aren't as conservative as— as we think they might be.
2: Well, I also think they've got other things that they want to prioritize. (laughs) They're
0: worried about their jobs, their careers,
2: they're worried about health care. Um, now they're worried about Korea. I mean, they're all North Korea. There are all sorts of other things that are priorities. But I do think it's, you know, society is evolving in many ways faster than the political establishment is evolving. And we're just sort of playing this game of catch up. It amazes me, too, how quick this changes. And Don't have to Tell was years to create, years to repeal. And during that time, you were, you were humanizing it and personalizing it with all these stories. The transgender issue happened really quickly. Yeah. But I think people just look at it and say, "What's what's right is right. What's fair is fair.
0: Yeah. I mean, thinking back to my time at the White House, I mean, that review of the Don't Ask, Don't Tell policy was years long, arduous, constant study. It's just amazing to contrast that and the thoughtful nature of that study with a tweet.
2: Well, yes. I don't (laughs) even know how to react to a tweet. There's got to be something in the middle. We overstudy things. Sure. Um, The voters don't do that. They they think about it. They react to it. And then they move on. And, you know, I, I have now had 25 years of people saying, you can't do this. You can't do that. They're not ready for that. And they're, they're past us. And I think I've always thought that voters, what they want is someone um, who's who's honest, uh, speaks his or her mind. Whether they believe in it or not, at least they know they can trust that person. And that's what leadership is about, too, is is not doing something after you think
0: everybody else has gotten to that point, but pushing forward on yeah. it. Slightly switching gears, there's been... You know, some attention to the fact that Trump has really filled his White House with former military, H.R. Uh, McMaster, General Mattis, uh, not the White House, but um, General Kelly as chief of staff. Curious if you have thoughts on that choice or the perceived imbalance in sort of military backgrounds in his national security team.
2: Well, first, I'd say the three generals you've mentioned are all remarkable individuals um, who've contributed in just really extraordinary ways to their country. And if you took each of them individually, I would say, oh, it's, I'm very comfortable having H.R. McMaster in that job or, or Jim Mattis as Secretary of Defense. But I want my president to have the benefit of, of as much of as broad a pool of advice as possible. And military leaders. Uh, grow up kind of the same way, develop the same way, get the same training, same types of education, and are focused on military solutions to problems. Some of them, including these three, much more creative at it than others. But nonetheless, they're thinking, they've spent their careers thinking in terms of military solutions. And, uh, you know, people often say the military's purpose is to fight and win wars. And, and I think actually the, the purpose of our military is to be so fierce and threatening that nobody wants to take us on, so we deter war. So the first purpose is deterrence. If that doesn't work, then it's to go in and clean house. That's how. Well, that's what they're thinking, but we want it to be the last thing you get to. And so diplomacy, development, all these other types of things that are important parts of the toolbox need to be at the table as well. And the more generals that you put in, I think the more it crowds out people who have that different type of experience or
0: mindset or skill set. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I sort of have the same reaction. Like Rex Tillerson, in my mind, has been one of the biggest disappointments of any member of the cabinet just because I thought that he was someone that you could see serving in that role under almost any president because of his vast executive experience and knowledge of world leaders. But he seemingly has abdicated his role or at least his voice at the table, and I'm not sure why. So yeah, I do wonder the same thing. Like, Who is sitting there in pinstripes from Foggy Bottom saying we could— talk to this individual to try to diffuse this Well, there, there aren't
2: people in pinstripes at Foggy Bottom because they haven't filled any of those roles. <laughs> I mean, you, you, at the start of the Obama administration, almost all the cabinet agencies took a little bit of a haircut on their budgets, yeah. except state. I think they got a 17% increase. And one of the biggest boosters of that was Bob Gates, the right. Secretary of Defense. Jim Mattis has that great quote, "If that if you cut the State Department budget, I'm going to have to buy more bullets. Um, the Pentagon, by and large, really appreciates a robust diplomatic corps and State Department and advocates for it. So, yeah. I don't know how you can be – frankly, I don't know how you can be an effective secretary of state when one of the first things you do is come in and oversee a 30 percent cut. You know, his – his victory was getting that over three years versus over one year. But what message does that send to the, to the workforce? You know, diplomats are deployed around the world, oftentimes in, in dangerous areas with less security than our military has. I think it's incredibly demoralizing. And the, you, just, you don't have any of the senior civilian appointees there that help carry out policy. So
0: it's – Do you think there's just sort of a cultural lack of a understanding or appreciation for what – the State Department does or what diplomats do? I mean, I think that our country rightly has enormous respect and reverence for the men and women who are fighting for us. They get that. But I'm just wondering if we need to do some more education on what a diplomat does.
2: Yeah. we, We celebrate, as we should, what men and women in uniform do. But the Army has substantially more people deployed outside of the country on any given day than All foreign service agents, state department, commerce, agriculture, you name it. And we don't, I think, understand or appreciate what they do. And if they do their job well and are supported so they can do it, they prevent the men and women in uniform from
0: having to risk their lives and to go into combat. Switching gears a little bit here. In 2016, the Department of Veterans Affairs released a study that showed approximately 20 veterans commit suicide each day nationwide. In 2014, that was 7,400 veterans who took their own lives, accounting for 18% of all suicides in America, despite the fact that vets make up less than 9% of the population. These numbers are shocking. You know, I I don't think it's a partisan statement that I think it shows an abject failure by the government and cross administrations to support these people. And I don't think it's it's not for lack of caring or trying, but I, I wonder if you have thoughts on how this could be true or what the government should be doing to support these people, these men and women.
2: Well, I I, um, choose these words carefully. We do care. We do try, but not enough. Um, Enough attention is not paid to veterans in our country and what they've done. And I think we have not, you know, I I don't know when it'll be, but at some point in the future, we're going to look back on today and say, wow, we really did not understand the effects of brain injuries. We did not understand the effects of post-traumatic stress. I think it's amazing what we ask men and women in uniform to do. It goes against thousands of years of evolution and and how we behave and what we think we should do, what we ask them to do. And we should expect that when we ask someone to do something extraordinary like that, to go into a war zone and do what they do, that they're going to come back with issues. I would be frightened if we had an army of soldiers that weren't affected by what they do in combat. I don't think I would really want to let that loose on the world as a whole. But we still have this stigma attached to mental health issues and needing to ask for that help. I think we'll get there. We, you know, w- Sleeping used to be seen as a weakness in the military. You know, the Commanders wouldn't sleep when their soldiers were on patrol. And now we realize that sleep deprivation weakens you, and we, we teach it as a pillar of strength, sleep. We'll get there when it comes to... PTS and in the, in the mental effects of, of combat and of deployment. But we're not there yet, and we certainly don't treat it as we should in the veterans community.
0: So does the VA need to step up? Does the military need to do more before men and women leave service? Like, yeah, absolutely. It's, you know— We've done a lot to improve this,
2: but really it is you are in the military until an abrupt moment when all of a sudden Veterans Affairs takes over. There needs to be more of an overlap. So starting with the military, we need to do a better job of diagnosing unseen injuries, uh, invisible wounds, as it were. We owe that. Anybody who serves deserves to have any impact of that service diagnosed and treated. And so we need to catch it in the military when it happens. We need to make these services are part of pre-deployment workups post-deployment workup, work workdowns uh, and we need to understand it better before someone moves over to the veterans affairs department i think one thing that we could do is actually even after someone becomes a veteran, keep them in the military system a little bit longer because it is set up for different types of issues than the veterans system is. There's a lot of geriatric care in the veterans system, but we can do more in the, in the active system to diagnose and treat those invisible
0: wounds before someone is turned over to the veterans system. Are there organizations that you know of or work with that people listening could support that are helping veterans who are not getting what they need from the VA? There are a lot of veterans groups out there and doing all sorts of things. I'd hate to pick one
2: over the others, but helping with transition with, with jobs, which is a big part of this. It's an abrupt shift for someone to leave the military and go into the civilian world. We do all this training to send someone in combat. We don't do any, do nearly the same amount of training to send them back into the civilian
0: world. Short of PTSD and some of the more acute problems you talked about, I've heard you talk a lot about the strain of repeated deployments, overextended deployments. Can you talk a little bit about that and, like, What challenges uh, men and women who are serving today face just doing their jobs that maybe we don't know about? Well, the all-volunteer
2: force was not designed to be used the way we're using it. It's an incredibly professional and awesomely lethal force. But we never imagined that it'd be a force at war for 17 years. The burden that a small percentage of the country is carrying on behalf of the rest of the country is pretty amazing. And you have Marines and soldiers and others who have multiple, you know, six, seven tours, and they're away from their families. It's tough on their families, tough on their spouses, tough on their kids. Uh, It can lead to all sorts of problems with the family, which just adds to the burden for the service member that's doing these deployments. And so we've got to figure out what we want out of our force and then how we're going to resource it. I get asked all the time, why does the United States need to spend as much money on its military as the next eight, nine, whatever the number is now, countries combined? And I think that's the wrong way to look at it. The the issue is what do you want your force to do? And if you want it to do what it's doing today, all over the world, you know, we have soldiers in 150 different countries today, uh, it's going to cost you. And frankly, it probably should cost more because I don't think we're supporting the men and women in uniform the way we
0: should. And in addition to that, you have these highly trained special operators, Navy SEALs, others, Army Rangers, who are, who are shouldering an even bigger burn of the, the heavy combat portion of that. Do you think that – I mean th- I think this was – we've talked about the way Trump may be over relying on these special operators. I think a lot of people thought Obama was over-reliant on special operators. Is that a concern you share? It is. Um, It
2: creates also some weird dynamics in the military as a whole. The special operations community does amazing things and has grown to a size that it wasn't at the start of this war. And they have an important purpose, and they have been incredibly successful in a lot of ways. But what is the goal of what we're trying to accomplish? If it's it's endless surgical strikes to take out leaders that can be replaced— um, then it's your special operators alone. But if you're actually trying to create some political stability on the ground, you need different larger forces as well to help do that, to help hold ground, to help hold territory. And it goes back to when we were talking about having all the generals in the senior um, positions. President Obama's plan to deal with ISIS had nine components to it, and only two were military, and all of them. None of them could succeed if there wasn't one foundational success, which is political stability
0: in these regions. Special operators can't do that. When I hear you have that answer, it makes me think of Afghanistan, a place where there are special operators kicking down doors and taking out senior Taliban and maybe now ISIS members or or Al-Qaeda members in certain parts of the country. But additionally, you know, there are – there have been tens, hundreds of thousands of ground troops in place. Uh, there's coalitions. What do you think when you hear the Trump administration debating again whether or not to send additional troops to Afghanistan, sending Marines back to Helmand province, like places where it can sound it could feel a little bit like Groundhog Day? Yeah, it does feel like Groundhog Day, and I think
2: that's probably a part of the reason that the new administration hasn't settled on a policy yet because all the options I'm seeing sound a, a little bit more or less than what we're already doing. And that doesn't seem to have been working over the many years. And I think there are some fundamental changes in... It, it's not, you know, it, we get caught up in the number of troops that are over there. I think the issue is what they're doing. You know, I, we, we, We're trying to train an Afghanistan military. And I think they have a big special operations force, which I think actually is more like an army. And the rest of what is the army is just frankly, not very effective and not fighting in ways that allows them to maintain holding ground on their
0: own. Right. Do you think that you can effectively train an army in Afghanistan or Iraq or anywhere else without managing the governance portion of that, and by that I mean having an effective representative government in Afghanistan, in Iraq. I mean, like, are we doing enough on the diplomatic front to support those training efforts of the troops?
2: I don't think we are. I think y- y- you certainly, I guess you could, if you had a well-trained military in the absence of a stable political system, then you'd have a junta, you know, in the end. You'd have, you'd have the military to be in control of things. I think everything has to be predicated on some political stability in those countries that we're working in. The the military comes after that in a way or or can't hold any of the accomplishments, the gains, the achievements in the absence of that political stability. And we have to be realistic about what kind of force and size of force that we're building.
0: It's got to be a force that eventually that country can support on its own. It's hard to watch that debate happen again. And it's funny because there's part of me that watches Trump resist sending more troops over there. And I think Good for him <laughs> because I think Obama, if you were to give him truth serum, might think back to the amount of troops we surged in in 09 and think it's not clear what the output was uh, for the enormous sacrifice that went into that effort.
2: Yeah, and the military strategy has to be part of a larger strategy
0: um, and it just seems
2: to be a focus in the military strategy. And by the way, he's been critical of the four-star commanding general in Afghanistan whom he's never met who I think is doing an amazing job over there, it just is, he he sends, the president, commander-in-chief sends a lot of mixed messages
0: to the force. It's disruptive and it's distracting. Yeah, joking about refusing to send more troops to Afghanistan but shipping McMaster over there to get him out of the White House and get him a fourth star is uh, not funny. That's not cool. My last question for you is if, If you were in the White House advising President Trump on on how to be a good commander-in-chief, is there any any advice you'd tell him that you'd share with us?
2: Well, my guess is it's the same advice a lot of other people are giving him. You know, it's to think through what he says. His words have consequence. And I don't even know how much time he spends on the words that he puts into his tweet, let alone the thoughts behind them. And that would be my main thing is everything you say is listened to by everybody in the world, and they react to it. Pick North Korea. He's not telling the North Koreans anything they don't know already. I mean, if if they didn't think that we would actually destroy their regime if they attacked us, they would have attacked us by now. But he's sending these words. I'll tell you what I worry about most. It's not the president sending conflicting messages out to the world. I'm worried about how the president hears himself. Mm -hmm. He cares so much about appearing to be strong that I'm afraid that as he does these things, he's actually talking himself into red lines and and painting himself into a corner and is going to feel that he has to act to, listen, to live up to his increasingly bellicose tweets and statements about what's going on in the world. And so, you know, as, as John Kelly goes over there now that he is as chief of staff, he, I know he wants to get control of, the, of that device that he's, the president's <laughs> tweeting from, and I'm not sure he's going to be able to do that, but
0: it has to start there. Snap that thing in half, yeah. General Kelly. Um, yeah, I mean, you've mentioned uh, North Korea a few times. I mean, the— the risk of miscalculation or misreading something that any that we do, that the South Koreans do, the North Koreans do, is so high that I just wonder if it's just driving General Kelly and others insane to watch him be so reckless with his language. I, I think it it, it has to. Uh,
2: I, I would say absolutely. And they're now spending good chunks of their time trying to tamp these things down, you know, these goodwill tours around the world to say, no, 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 that's not really what he meant. It's not really that bad. But you're right, and it's not just a... You know, again, the the North Koreans know, we've been saying this for a long time, what we'll do if they attack. Um, There is no good military option over there. Any military option involves rapidly the deaths of tens of thousands, if not hundreds of thousands of people, including many Americans. There's up to a quarter of a million civilian American civilians in the Seoul area. All would be at risk. But it's not just North Korea and the United States or North Korea, South Korea and the United States. You know, there's increasing interaction and provocation with the Chinese all in that region and with the Russians. And all this adds in to potential miscalculation or escalation and something could happen. Fun. Yeah, no, fun.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Eric, thank you so much for doing this. I could talk to you all day. This is fascinating. This reminds me of why I miss the NSC gig so much. But um, it's great to know that people like you were serving in government and, and I'm hoping we'll do so again. Someday soon when we check out this buzzer. Yeah, after I'm ready to get out
2: from under the covers. (laughs) All right, thanks. Thank you.